This is Annie. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And today, we're going to try to answer a question, which is, why do dudes show you their dicks? Oh, dudes be showing their dicks. Has that ever happened to you? Twice. Uh, I mean, twice where it's been, like, not just some guy on a train, like, where it's been with just me. Oh, God. So first, before we get into this, we should say, quick trigger warning, this is about non-consensual showings. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about today. It's pretty gross. Let's get into it. Yeah. So not it didn't happen to you on a train or it happened it was like a, you and another person in a room together? Yeah. Um well it it has happened in a public space like on a train before, but I've had two instances where it was more like private than that. And one the first time I was 8, I was 8 years old. And I am just really glad that at that age, I wasn't sure what was wrong, but I knew something was wrong. And I went and got help. I'm very glad that I did. Yeah. Did did they find the guy? They did find the guy. He was a friend of the family. He's someone I knew. And it often is. And that's one thing that really bothers me when the argument comes up about why didn't you report something earlier when we're talking about sexual assault or things like this is because it's it's almost always someone that you know and there's kind of this pressure to like not make waves that is so much stronger than you might think it is and also just like you know this person and you know that not only will you might you might not be believed it'll be difficult to prove if you succeed potentially ruin this person's life this person that you know so it does, it really bothers well, me. Well, he ruined his own life. Sure. But that's how you feel. Exactly. Like, it really upsets me when people are like, yeah, why didn't you report earlier? There's so many things that go into it. It is such a complex situation. Um, and when you're a kid, like I was a kid, and they were just like, this isn't going to happen again, you move on, right? I don't know if you do move on. I, I, I would imagine maybe it could stick with you forever. Yeah, it does, clearly, because I do remember it very well, but... As a kid, I, I guess I sort of thought it was just this weird thing, and uh, I'm going to go about my, my kid business. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even imagine—I mean, it's bad enough when it happens as an adult grown woman. I can't even imagine how confusing and disorienting and destabilizing that is to be a little kid and to have that happen. You know, maybe it's even before you have your birds and the bees talk. You don't even really understand what is going on, but you know it doesn't feel right. Yeah. And Jesus, I mean, I, can't, I just really can't. It's just so hard yeah. and scary and confusing. Yeah. I, yeah, I was very, I remember being very scared. And it, it, is, it, it is interesting, and we're going to talk more into this because we are trying to get to why this is a thing at all. But I do remember kind of the sense from the person that I would be excited or happy. And we are going to talk about that because there is kind of a psychology going on there. How about you? Have you ever had? Yeah, it's happened a few times. I lived in New York for a while and something about living in Brooklyn, it was a hotbed of indecent exposure. I don't know what what the deal was. It happened once in a really traumatic way on the subway. I actually didn't even live in New York at the time. I was just visiting New York and I was standing on the train 
And a woman next to me was being really weird, right? I was standing holding onto the bar and she was making eye contact with me and sort of tugging at me. And I thought, this woman is out of her mind. And I couldn't quite figure out what was going on. And then I realized the guy behind me had exposed himself and was actually jacking off in the back of my winter coat. And she was trying to get my attention. But of course, it's, it's New York, so you're, yeah, you're, you know, you're in your own everybody. world. Yeah. If somebody tries to make eye contact with you on the subway, you're like, let me not make eye contact back. That was a time that was pretty bad. Yeah, this memory just reminds me of this woman who kind of became a New York City folk hero. Uh, on the subway, She, a, a man exposed himself to her. And when she realized what was happening, she was not having it. She really called him out in a way that I imagine... I mean, I wish I'd had the courage to do that, but she made such a scene that it got other people on the subway invested in getting this guy off the subway. Here's a little bit of how it sounded. I see his penis out. That's it. Hey, please, oh, man. I'm not leaving your side. My plans are done for tonight. I'm, I'm escorting you to the police station. You can kind of see why she became a bit of a New York City lady folk hero in that situation. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it happened when I was in high school. I went to an all-girls Catholic school, and so sometimes there would be perverts and creeps who would do things to, you know, my classmates and I when we were out and about yeah. after school. Probably found it titillating or something, but... There was a guy who would be who drove around and he would roll down his window and ask, do you know where Broad Street is? Do you know where Main Street is? And he would have a map. And when you would go to his car window, he would remove the map and it would be his junk. When it happened when, we, when I was with friends, I did not internalize it as a sexually threatening experience. It was just so out of the norm for how people behaved that we laughed and like pointed and... My friend was like, oh, it's so small. Like we, and he drove away. Yeah. And we, and I just thought like, oh, what a weird, funny thing that happened. And I, I told the story several times in a way that was humorous, like a joke. And then I remember hearing a classmate, it happened to her, same guy, but while she was alone. And that was the first time I realized, oh, that's actually scary and threatening. And it's just so interesting how that dynamic changed it when it was me with a group of my classmates we laughed and pointed at his, at his small, weird-looking dick. But when I heard about that, that same situation with my friend being alone, I was like, she could have been hurt. Like, it was just so different. So that was the time—it's it, happened a couple of times, but that was the time that sticks out at me the most, hearing about it secondhand from a friend when she was alone. It's happened a whole host of times on the subway, on the street, that kind of thing. But that's the time that really sticks with me. And again, I mean, I was like 15, yeah, and there have been a lot of high-profile cases of powerful men exposing themselves to women lately. You've got Harvey Weinstein, Louis C.K., Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer. There is a laundry list of people doing this. Um, I did read somewhere that this is not new behavior. It's centuries old, and it's not confined to the entertainment industry, obviously. But we have been hearing a lot more about it, and we were curious. Any science to why this would happen? A study conducted by the Barna Group in 2017 found that out of 1,000 respondents, one in four men did not consider exposing themselves or masturbating in front of people sexual harassment. What? Yeah, one in four. (laughs) That same study found that women are 10 to 20% more likely to consider something sexual harassment. So we have a disconnect here. I feel like if your dick is out and... It's not was not an agreed upon thing. It's sexual harassment. If you're not at a nude beach, 
and someone was not like, ooh, let's see what's in those, in those pants. <laughs> it's, if it's out, something's up. If it's out, something's <laughs> up. Oh, but you're I mean, probably right. <laughs> not like that. You know what I mean. Uh, yes. but, but who are these men who don't think it's sexual harassment to take out your genitals and pleasure yourself in front of someone who didn't ask for that? Well... You're like, I know who it is. It's Louis C.K., it's Matt Lauer, yeah. it's Charlie Rose, it's Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. It's more men than I would have guessed, apparently. And we are, yeah, we're going to look more into that. And if you're wondering, here in the U.S., most states do have indecent exposure laws that make exposing your genitals to someone else without their consent for the purposes of sexual gratification illegal. If touching the other person is involved at the same time, it could be escalated to a sexual assault charge. The typical punishment for indecent exposure is a misdemeanor charge, possibly a fine, maybe even jail time, and or requirement to register as a sex offender. So the law does not agree with these one in four men. Yeah, one in four men, homies, 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 get it together. Yeah. One-time president of the American Psychoanalytic Association suspects it has to do with deniability. Quote, it could also be a kind of strange, plausible deniability. It's a kind of disavowal, a kind of pernicious defense mechanism that allows a man to know that if that he did something on one level, but they are essentially telling themselves a story that they are not doing anything so bad. He could think to himself, well, I didn't rape anyone which is true in a broader sense, but it is a twisted defense. So this line of thinking I thought was so prevalent in the Louis C.K. situation. Like when I read that report, it really sounded like he was able to justify his behavior by saying it's not rape. And I actually saw a lot of people, frankly, people that I respected, say things like, oh, well, it's not like he attacked them or it's not like he abused them or it's not like he forced himself on them. And they sort of discount the fact that that kind of act wrapped up in it is the ability to make people say exactly that because you aren't necessarily touching them. It's the kind of thing that people who choose that as their mode of unacceptable, non-consensual sexual behavior, they are doing so because of that, because it has plausible deniability baked right into it. And again, when I actually sat down and read the report of what happened in the Louis C.K. situation, two of the women he did this to, one of the things that stuck out to me in their stories was that he invited them back to his hotel room, and it was the wintertime, so they were all bundled up, and he was already had his pants down and was masturbating before they took off their winter coats. So that means they had just gotten into the room. Yeah. And if you think that's acceptable sexual behavior, like, there's a real pathology on display there. Yeah, it kind of almost feels like a calculation that maybe some people are making subconsciously, but this is as far as like I can get away with before something that I cannot even begin to convince myself is correct. Like I can get away with this behavior, but I can't get away with this one. It's messed up thinking and it's wrong, but I, I wonder if there is an element of that to it. Oh, I'm sure there was. When I was in college, there was a guy who was a complete sexual predator And the way that he would sort of get around it, the way that he avoided being ostracized by our entire, you know, scene was that he basically, quote unquote, would only, quote unquote, his words, have sex with women while they were passed out drunk. And so for him, the way that he was able to sort of say like, oh, I'm not clocking them over the head and like dragging them back to my apartment. It would be like, oh, I'm just having sex with women who are too drunk to say no. 
And that was his M.O. to avoid being seen as a, quote, rapist rapist, which, of course, he was, but that he operated within—he was he was such a good sexual predator that he operated within this area where he knew enough people will be like, well, if she was drunk and I saw them dancing earlier in the night, maybe it wasn't actually rape. He specifically trafficked in that kind of sexual abuse because he knew that people— like these defenders, like these supporters, would be like, oh, it's not that bad. Yeah, that is the mark of a good predator. Absolutely. <laughs> this is a a lot of women have been impacted by this. Jennifer Wright over at Bazaar wrote um, about this time. She tweeted, quote, hey, women, retweet if you've ever been shown a penis you did not want or expect to see. And it has over 205,000 retweets. A lot of the stories shared were about this happening at a young age. Some male commenters, of course, responded with variations of, you're a part of the problem, ladies, but her boobs, though, are the always popular slut. Wait, how are you the slut if, some, if someone is showing you their penis? I know, right? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Your argument is flawed, <laughs> sexist Twitter responder. <laughs> right said of the whole situation, what surprises me, if anything can surprise me anymore about this, is that not taking your genitals out in front of a colleague doesn't strike me as a high bar on being a decent person. It strikes me as, honestly, a really low bar. However, I suppose it is exponentially higher than no bar whatsoever, which until very recently was the world some privileged men were operating in. Ugh. Yeah. That's just so depressing. Yeah. That's so depressing. It really is. What's even more depressing to me is the fact that from 2012 to 2014, 525 women reported men masturbating in front of them to the Everyday Sexism Project. In 2014, Lauren Bates wrote over at The Guardian about this. Quote, Girls are growing up in a world where this is such a widespread experience that some don't even see it as something that is unusual. It's just part of being a woman. I want to pull my hair out. That is awful. Yeah. The fact that women are internalizing this as something that is not out of the ordinary is really infuriating. Yeah, and that's why, like... I had two separate categories when you asked me, right? Like, there are these two that stand out to me, and then there's all these other times where it just happened, and I sort of went about my day because it is just part of being a woman, and it should not be at all. So we've established that this is a problem, but the question still remains, why? Why exactly? And we'll delve more into that after a quick break for a word from our sponsor. We're back. Thank you, sponsor. There hasn't been a lot of science looking into why this specifically may be, but there has been research into exhibitionism and exhibition disorder, which is a paraphilic disorder defined scientifically as recurrent, intense, sexually arousing fantasies, urges, or behaviors that are distressing or disabling and that involve inanimate objects, children, or non-consenting adults, or suffering or humiliation of oneself or the partner with the potential to cause harm. From there, exhibitionism is categorized based on whether the exhibitionist prefers to expose themselves to children, adults, or both. The behavior that we're talking about here, according to some but not all, does fall under the exhibitionism umbrella. And yes... Some exhibitionists are turned on by their own shame, perhaps even addicted to it. It's a cycle of feeling the shame. Yeah, going back to that experience in high school with my friends and we saw that guy in the car, I almost thought that he was into the fact that we were sort of laughing and pointing at him and belittling him and that we 
we weren't bursting into tears. The fact that we were pointing and laughing seemed to be part of it, yeah. if I had to say. Mm-hmm. Another thing that people who engage in this behavior often come with is narcissistic traits, a lack of both empathy and inhibition. According to the executive director of the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center, Gina Scaramella, this type of exhibitionist behavior falls into the same spectrum of a delusional entitlement to do whatever you want, no matter what everyone else thinks, and then some level of embarrassing or shaming the person that you're doing it in front of. And she goes on to say, for people who've been victimized in this way, things that people tend to express is that they feel stupid for feeling anything because they know that people are physically assaulted and raped and they feel like, why am I having such a reaction when they didn't touch me? So we really talk about how the feelings are very similar, whether or not you were touched. It's the same thing with people who were forced to watch pornography or listen to things. It doesn't always have to be physical to have the harmful psychological impact. Yeah, put that another way, I bet a lot of people can understand why having a sexually explicit conversation with a minor on the internet is not okay, even though that minor is not touched. It's still impactful. It still has a impact on them, even though you never touch them or see them or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And Dr. Daryl Turner, who is a forensic psychologist with a focus on sexual offenses, thinks that, quote, for a lot of guys who are exposing themselves as ridiculous as it seems, it is about the act of exposing yourself to someone who isn't expecting it that is sexually arousing. It's power play. It's control. The high-profile cases we mentioned, they are acting out on impulses and not involuntary compulsions, which is an important distinction. And California sex therapist Alexandra Katahakis told Slate something similar. Exhibitionists purposefully look to shock their victims because they are angry. They are not looking to make friends or go on a date. These are acts of revenge against women. These men are imposing the body part that is most threatening to a female, and in doing so, they are acting out what is called sexualized hostility or eroticized rage against their prey. That look of fear or humiliation on women is arousing to them. We see clinically that these men feel wildly inadequate. And going back to Louis C.K., he said as much in his statement. He said, What I learned later in life is that when you have power over another person, asking them to look at your dick isn't a question. It's a predicament for them. The power I had over these women is that they admired me, and I wielded that power irresponsibly. Yeah, the C.K. situation, Emily and I did an episode on it. I was really conflicted. His statement seemed to illustrate a wider understanding of why what he did was so f***ed up and how he you know, really kind of f***ed up the trajectory of these women's lives. Like some of, some of them were budding comedians and just left the industry altogether. On the other hand, it almost felt kind of designed to make me pity him. And it's sort of like what you're getting at, right? This idea that he kind of realized that this was about some f***ed up, dark, sad, gross thing inside of him. And by writing about it in his statement, it almost, on the one hand, I was like, oh, he really gets it. But then it's like, is he just using that as a shield? Like, oh, I'm pathetic and f***ed up and, yeah. you know, I need to work it out. So I felt so conflicted and bothered by his, by his statement. And I also think because on his show and in his stand-up, he talks about feelings of like how shame and sex are sort of connected. And I think when I found out that he was doing this to women and had been doing it for a long time and had been very hostile to people who brought it up in interviews, journalists, this and that. A, a fellow comedian, Tignataro, you know, how, how he went to great lengths to cover this up about himself, but then was open about it on stage. It just was a really confusing, conflicting situation. I think that we, no, I think I, I don't want to put words in anybody else's mouth. I think that I gave him too much credit 
because he seemed like someone who understood his dark impulses. And I don't think that excuses his behavior, right? Like, I guess what I'm saying, I'm sort of working out how I'm, how I'm feeling in the moment, but I guess what I'm saying is that I think that he perhaps expected a level of forgiveness because he is someone who both is open about his deep, dark sh- and talked about his deep, dark sh- in his statement. But if you're an adult man and you don't know that inviting women back to your hotel room, women who are your colleagues, women who you work with, women who admire you, taking out your dick and non-consensually off at them, and then using your power and your money and your status to squish them and anybody else who asks you about it, anybody else who questions you about it, anybody else, even a journalist who's doing her job to question it. There are so many stories of him getting people blacklisted, journalists getting blacklisted from the red carpet, people not talking to journalists, him using his agent to shake people down. Like, if you get to be an adult who is rich and powerful and famous and you don't know that's wrong, like, off forever. Like, I, like, part of me wants to be sympathetic to, oh, he's dark and twisted, but it seems so deliberate. Yeah. That was a tangent. No, I, I, no. Loved, I loved Louis C.K. for a while. Yeah. And that situation really held up a mirror both to me, to like what I'm willing to sort of excuse and be okay with. Yeah, it just really made me think, well, predators are good. Like, predators know how to do something horrible to someone else, and in the end, have you feel sorry for them. Yeah. Absolutely agree. (laughs) And going back to sort of what we were talking about earlier of the whole, it's not rape, it's not, there wasn't touching involved. Conscious Saffers, who is a therapist with a specialty in problematic sexual behavior, has this to say. I like to use the metaphor that if your attacker had hit you over the head with a frying pan, you wouldn't call it cooking. Just because the invent event evolved genitals doesn't make it sexual. The person used masturbation as a weapon, no different than a gun. It is violence. So it is an attack. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's someone listening right now who is thinking, he just showed me his penis. He just off near me. He just touched my boobs. Or like, there's someone out there thinking that something that happened to them wasn't that bad. And it was that bad. Like, if you feel like it was that bad, it was that bad. And I think as women, we are, whether it's our pain, whether it's our physical pain, or whether it's something traumatic that happened to us, I think we are conditioned to, it's not that bad it. And to put it in a little category of, I don't need to deal with it. I don't want to make a fuss. I don't want to make a bother. But you know what? Make waves, yeah. Yeah, we don't want to make waves. But then you can't lock something away and not deal with it because it always comes up. And so the same way that, 15-year-old Bridget maybe laughed when that guy showed her and her friends his dick. I still think about it. Like, it didn't go, it didn't go anywhere. It didn't, it's still with me. We lie to ourselves and tell ourselves that it's not that bad because we don't want to make waves. And we're just sort of increasing the burden on ourselves, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't have to do that. No, we shouldn't. We're going to take one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. We're going to keep digging into this. I know, I'm pissed. I know, I am too. We're getting worked up. Let's find Louis C.K. <laughs> We've got something to say to you, Louis. Like knock on his door. <laughs> you don't know who we are, but we know who you are. <laughs> And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. During that break, we did not go track down Louis C.K. and bang on his door, in case you were curious. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have to take a really long break yeah. for that. Do some digging. Yes. <laughs> this seems like the beginning of like a um, vigilante group of women who like 
go get justice on men who are harassers and abusers. Like, this is how those things start. Well, if something happens to Louis C.K., I'm afraid they're going to suspect us. <laughs> we will be the us. first suspects. <laughs> We've got it on, it's like on they, record. They're not, they're not very good criminals. They made a whole podcast about what their plans <laughs> First, we've got to find him. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay, so researchers who are looking into this affirm that many men who are exhibitionists do have sexist views of women, are probably looking to reaffirm their masculinity and or may have experienced abuse in the past. There are treatments available to exhibitionists, namely medication and or psychotherapy, perhaps cognitive behavioral therapy to identify triggers and alternate ways of coping, But most don't seek these out until they are caught. A blog post on Psychology Today suggests that men who masturbate in front of women do it out of, quote, intolerable anxiety and a need to reassure themselves that their penis, a.k.a. their manhood, is acceptable in their heads, although perhaps on an unconscious level. They have a fantasy that women will be excited to witness such a thing. The act soothes the anxiety around their masculinity, at least for a little bit, And that is the man's primary goal in this scenario, this blog post argues, not to humiliate the woman. She is being used to reflect back what the man desires to see. So she's just like a vessel or like a mirror. Yeah. And so in a kind of way, it's not even really about her. It is because she's there and is part of it and is taking something away from that situation herself. But it seems like what they're saying there is that it's just she is a tool to work out something inside of himself. Yeah. Men are complex creatures, I'll tell you that. They're, they're... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Richard's making a lot of, like, ringing hand I'm gestures. Trying to, I'm just trying to, like, get my, like, wrap my head around that because, yeah. oh boy. Yeah. There certainly is a lot at play here. And like I said at the beginning, when this happened to me when I was young, I definitely got the sense from that guy that he thought this was going to be a great experience for all involved. So... I think there is a level of, yeah, you are not a person. Whatever woman they're doing this in front of is no longer a person. It is a tool or something to use to make something easier or better inside yourself. Something that you mentioned that struck with me is this idea that men who do this don't usually get help until it's too late. I would have had so much more respect for people like Louis C.K. if he had said, you know, this is going to come out sooner or later. Yeah. Because he waited until it was already out. Sure. I feel like people give him credit for Getting ahead of it, he didn't. It was like a yeah. thing for a very long time. I would have so much more respect for these people if they said, I have this thing I need to work out. Why wait until it gets worse? I need to be honest with myself and the people around me and get help. Like, yeah. I, would, I want someone to not wait until there's a blind item on Jezebel about who is this famous comedian masturbating in front of people. Right. I want someone to think to themselves, I'm not on the right path, and I need to put a stop to it before it gets worse. Yeah. I would have so much more respect for them if they did that, if they didn't wait until they had to deal with it. Right. And that's, I think that's part of the problem when you were talking about like Louis C.K.'s statement is that it was, if he had known these things, he did wait until he was caught to do something about it. And I have a relationship in my life with someone who uses pity very much so that you cannot judge them. You have to pity them. And it's just so that they don't have to face the consequences for their actions. Weaponized pity. That was basically having a a sputtering inability to express myself. That was what I was trying to get at. It's weaponized pity. It's this idea that because I have expressed that I'm in a vulnerable situation, I'm going through this tough time. I'm dealing with this hard thing. 
I had a bad childhood. I grew up a fat nerd and nobody wanted to f- me. Whatever it is, yeah. it's this way of using people's pity as a way of getting out of taking responsibility for your own stuff. And I, and I think that I was trying, I couldn't express that earlier, but that is exactly what it is. It's, it's weaponized pity. Yeah, I, I think we see that play out a lot, probably a lot more than we realize. I think there's a lot going on here and we could use more more research because this is a problem clearly and we've just been dealing with it and we need to find some solutions. Well, I have one pretty easy solution. Don't show your dick to anybody who doesn't want to see your dick. That is or a classic, a good one. Just assume they don't want to see your dick. In a workplace setting, they probably don't want to see your dick. Oh, yeah. On the subway, they probably don't want to see your dick. And I would say unless they've asked to see it, they probably don't want to see it. Just, just air yeah. if you're, if you If you have to ask, here's my advice. Speaking of like stuff your mom ever told you, if you have to ask, err on the side if she doesn't want to see it. Yeah. That's my advice. That's good advice. Yeah. We didn't even get into um, dick pics, unsolicited oh my dick God. pics. I could, I could do an art installation. I could wallpaper the walls in my apartment with dick pics, unsolicited. I've gotten yeah. so many. I don't want to be TMI, but your girl's on the market. <laughs> uh, I just don't f- understand it. Like, I could show you conversations where it goes from, hey, uh, oh, I see you like to surf. Where, where, what beach was that? That looks like a nice beach. To penis in so, so quickly, so quickly. Yeah. What, what are they doing? It's like an opening gambit. Yes. <laughs> Here's my theory. I think a guy suspects, if I send my penis picture unsolicited to 100 girls, one might be into it. I think it's, I think it's a numbers game. Oh, yeah. That's what I think. I could see that. It's wild to think that this is just another thing that, oh, we learn to deal with because I remember... It's kind of like that fear in Snapchat that you'll just get a dick pic one day. Or I can't remember what was that other kind of like, I used to call it Russian roulette. That's oh, it um, chat roulette. Chat roulette, yeah. yeah. And oh, it was all, it was all like disembodied dicks masturbating. Yeah. That was what it was like basically. That was disembodied penis yeah. masturbating.com was basically what it was. Yeah. And it was just a thing we all knew. Yeah. So I think perhaps that plays together with what we've been talking about today. I didn't really even think about, uh, yeah, how many unsolicited dick pics. Girl, I'll show you some off, off mic because I have some stories and it's ridiculous and I don't get it. There's something about getting sent an unsolicited dick pic that, at least for me, it just kind of makes me wonder, what is it about me or our interaction that made you think that this was okay? Yeah, well, I wonder if it is sort of the same thing where it's like you're, they're just using you for whatever pleasure or gratification or whatever reassurance they need that their penis is okay. I don't know. I'll say that it does feel very hostile to me when I just get one and I'm like, I didn't. At least ask. Yeah, or like, I personally have never been in a situation where it even made sense. Like you were saying, yeah. or like conversationally, there was nothing in there. I can almost see if we're having a flirtatious conversation yeah. and you're like, I mean, hell, Mary, Slide this in, see what she thinks. I can maybe see that. Yeah. Maybe. I, I wouldn't recommend it, and no. I don't appreciate it, but no. I can understand it. The times that you're talking about where it's like, there's not even a logical, you can't even follow what, like why it's happening. Yeah. Yeah, and it's in the context of, I find when this happens, it's almost always somebody you barely know. Um, like, it's one thing if you're in a relationship and maybe you've been talking about sexting or whatever, but if it is just some random dude that you don't know that well, uh, no thank you. Keep it in your pants. Yeah. The end. 
That's all I got to say about that. That's it. Is that so much to ask? I mean, it's really, I'm not showing my genitals to anybody right now. That's how easy it is. Yeah, you almost have to work harder to do it. Yes. So, yeah. I hope we've gotten through to some people. (laughs) We probably haven't because most of our listeners are already pretty, pretty rad. But speaking of listeners, we do have listener mail. And both of these listener mails are kind of on the longer side. They're responses to the episode we did about the vote in Ireland. Anna wrote, As a Dublin listener and a journalist myself who has been marching for choice since I was a teenager in the early 90s and spent April and May campaigning for a yes vote in the recent Irish referendum, I really enjoyed and appreciated your latest episode. Like thousands of others all over Ireland, I went out canvassing with my local group. Shout out to the Dublin Bay North. Yeah, shout out. Knocking on doors all over Dublin and encouraging people to vote yes. It was an incredibly stressful and grueling campaign, not least because the thought of what a no vote would say about our country was basically unbearable. But it was also incredibly rewarding. Not only was there enormous camaraderie among the campaigners who all really supported each other, but we got to have really good, thoughtful conversations with all sorts of people on the doors, including many who were undecided about which way to vote. These conversations always left me hopeful that compassion and empathy would win the day, as indeed it did. People really opened up to us, telling us the most personal stories, which were often incredibly moving. I was too scared to let myself get too hopeful, but the day before the vote, members of my canvassing group gathered on a local footbridge at the evening rush hour asking commuters to beep for yes. We had a constant stream of beeps and thumbs up and even applause, and it really made me feel that my country, or at least my city, was on the right side. The same thing happened the next day when we gathered on Traffic Island after the anti-choice crowd took over our bridge to deafening silence from drivers, I'm pleased to say. Repeal Island, as it quickly became known, became a hub of joyful support. I knew then that whatever the result was, my city was full of what we in Dublin would call sound people. When the exit polls came in that night showing a landslide for yes, my group gathered in a nearby pub, hugging and laughing, unable to believe it. The next day, after finding out our constituency had returned a 75% yes vote with 71% voter turnout, we gathered in a sunny Dublin castle for the result, where we toasted our neighbors and ourselves with Prosecco. Working on the campaign is one of the best things I've ever done, and I'm so glad I did it. After the campaign, many of my friends and I felt a huge calm down. It was like being jet-lagged. We were so used to being stressed and constantly working, we didn't know how to relax anymore. But we're all gradually getting back to normal. My canvassing group had a reunion meeting last week where we vowed that abortion is accessible to everyone who needs it, including migrants and people from marginalized communities of all kinds. The fight continues but we're still feeling pretty good about what we achieved. As you should. Yay! Yeah. Anna, that, first of all, I have, that kind of gave me flashbacks to when I worked on campaigns because that feeling is completely normal, that sort of whiplash feelings of, you know, balls to the wall, high-octane campaign life where you're sort of stressed, having a good time kind of, but stressed a lot, and then it's over and you're like, wait, I can sleep now? You know? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> Um, but that's so awesome. It, yeah. makes, it like warms my heart. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm so glad that there are sound people out there and in your city. And thank you for working on the campaign and making your voice heard. Yeah. Our next letter is from Kaylee. Kaylee wrote, I absentmindedly put Sminty on today while I was bra shopping, as I am wont to do. And let me tell you, I can now tick crying surrounded by ugly beige bras off of my list of reactions I've had to the podcast. So thanks for that. I was involved in canvassing for a yes vote in the referendum. 
Out on the streets talking to people, knocking on doors, manning information stalls, writing letters, etc. The referendum campaign was an all-encompassing emotional experience for those of us involved. I'm going to attribute crying in the double D plus bra aisle to that. I just wanted to thank you for covering the topic at all. Your episode was so well-researched and balanced in its delivery. I've seen and read a lot of international takes on the ref in the last few weeks, but I'm a fan of the show, so it was great to hear something so dear to me get the sminty stamp. The way you talked about Savita was especially moving and completely in line with how we as pro-choice activists felt about her preventable death and what it meant about our place as women in Ireland. The Eighth Amendment came in 1983. I wasn't due to be born for another decade, and my mother wasn't even old enough to vote at the time. Yet, it essentially reduced our entire beings to nothing more than walking wombs, as far as the law was concerned. Growing up, abortion wasn't talked about, except in hushed tones. Normally after seeing the graphic image posted by anti-choicers outside public landmarks on Saturday mornings, or if you heard a rumor about a girl in the area who had, quote, gone to England. It's also worth bearing in mind that contraception wasn't freely available here until 1992, and the morning after pill didn't become available without prescription and with a very judgy consultation from your local GP until 2015. Ugh, terrible. There have been activists fighting the AIDS since the 80s, of course, but as you mentioned, it wasn't until Savita's death that the issue truly got the attention and mainstream support that it deserved. And that's why I personally started to become invested in the issue, too. It's worth noting that our victory in this referendum is a testament to people power and specifically the power of women. Since the result, I've noticed a lot of politicians from traditionally right-leaning parties, like the one that has become the current majority in our government, have crept in to try to claim our victory. As the story is being retold, decades of work by activists are being rebranded by politicians to try and earn them voters in the next election, when as recently as last year, they were not behind the issue. Our Taoiseach, the Irish prime minister, called the win, quote, a quiet revolution, when in truth, there was nothing quiet about it. The win for the yes side was because of us, the women of Ireland who were sick of being treated like second-class citizens and the men who supported us instead of trying to keep us down. It belongs to the normal people who marched, held strikes, lobbied, and fought with everything they had in them. It belongs to the activist groups like ARC, the Abortion Rights Campaign, ROSA, for Reproductive Rights Against Oppression, Sexism, and Austerity, the MERJ, Migrants and Ethnic Minorities for Reproductive Justice, to name a few. We definitely had the support of some amazing politicians whose work can't be discounted, but that came toward the end of that fight. At its core, the movement was just normal women taking to the streets and making their voices heard. It was only a quiet revolution to those who weren't willing to listen to it. I'm so proud to count myself as one of those women and to be someone who stood shoulder to shoulder with women and some men like that. Change has been a long time coming in Ireland, and over the last few years, it really seems to be snowballing. Our next step is to fight for those same rights for our Northern Irish sisters. On May 26, I was in the public courtyard of Dublin Castle for the announcement of the referendum results, surrounded by hundreds of others who had fought for a yes vote. We pretty much knew from the exit polls that it was going to go our way, but I needed to hear the official announcement before I could be relieved. After what happened to our neighbors with Brexit and the U.S. election, sorry to even bring it up, girl, me too, I was worried that it would be a no. There was a good feeling in the air, but only the day before, the day of the vote, I had manned a stall and received the most openly hostile reaction I have ever experienced while canvassing to date. When we finally got the news, the place exploded. We only got to hear the words in Irish, Gaelic, before we started screaming and hugging, so the English announcement got drowned out. Once the initial celebration ended, a chant started, and together, hundreds of us who fought to change things chanted the name of the woman who really changed it all, Savita. She won't be forgotten. Wow. I have chills. I feel like I was there. It's inspiring stuff. It's been so wonderful hearing from so many of our Irish listeners who have stories like this and who made this change happen. Definitely. Yeah. 
I'm so thankful that they worked on the campaign and volunteered and just really did the work. Yeah. Thank you to both of them for writing in and all of the other listeners who have written in. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You and on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And thanks as always to our producers, Dylan Fagan and Kathleen Quillian. 